Uh, we are taking a break this morning from our series in 1 Peter as I am preaching a sermon more specifically uh, directed towards the ordination that will be taking place today. So let me invite you in your Bibles, if you want to open with me, uh, to Philippians chapter 2, page 981, if you're following in those blue Bibles, or of course the passage is printed in your bulletin as well. Uh, for the last two ordinations that we've had, I've tried to, and, I, and I, I'm personally enjoying it, I hope others are as well, but what I've tried to do is focus on uh, really one distinct idea for each of those ordination and each of the officers who would be part of that ordination. So uh, when Nick and Nick and Pat were ordained, uh, the word that I chose, one of the qualifications that we find in the book of Titus for officers, for elders in particular, was the word that when translated means lovers of good. And so what I preached on is that officers in the church should be lovers of that which is good. And when Jack was ordained recently, uh, what I chose for that one, another singular uh, Greek word, but for us translated the love of strangers or hospitality, that those who are leaders in the church, those who are officers in the church should be those who lead us in demonstrating and in living a life of hospitality. Today, I'm going to use this text that is before us today to highlight another quality although I will say that this quality uh, by name, if you will, is not included in the list for officers that we find both in uh, Titus and in 1 Timothy as well. But I trust that as we look at two men in particular, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are highlighted in the text that I'm about to read for us, we will see how important the, the preeminent quality is in their lives for those who would serve in office in the church of Jesus Christ. So let me read the passage for us. Uh, it is verses 19 through 30 of Philippians chapter 2. This is Paul, the prisoner for the Lord, writing to a beloved church, Philippi, uh, as he is sending back to Philippi two people whom they know and love, Timothy and Epaphroditus. This is the word of God. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for every single part of your word. And in particular, this morning, we thank you for how personal your word is and these stories of people in the faith and how they have served your church at different places and in different times and in, in oftentimes difficult circumstances where life and limb were on the line for them. So we pray that as we consider this portion of your word this morning, that you would apply it to our hearts, to our lives, that insofar as these men follow Christ, we would follow them and learn from them and glean from them what it means to be a faithful servant of yours. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, all of us are aware, I trust, that the use of the phrase, how are you doing, is most of the time, or at least much of the time for us, just a way that we greet other people. It's a common greeting. We may be in the office, it may be amongst acquaintances, uh, even amongst friends, or even amongst people or with people that we don't even know at all, that we just say, how you doing? It's just a part of greeting. So when I'm walking down the street with a dog, if somebody passes me that I don't know, but we're close enough, that's the way I greet them. I just say, how you doing? And, and all of us understand that in that moment, in the way that we use that phrase, no one, neither the person who is asking the question or the person who is receiving the question, understands that to be something that is going to take a long and complicated answer to explain what's going on in their lives at that particular moment. We get it. We all understand it. It's just a convention that we use to, say, to, to, to greet one another and to say hello uh, to one another. And I suppose if we wanted to, we could take the time to analyze that and take it apart and say, uh, you know, this isn't appropriate. We really should care about people or we shouldn't ask that question. But that's not my point today. My point today isn't to critique our use of how you're doing. My point is simply to use it to be able to contrast a situation. Contrast it with this. When, when you're sitting down with a friend, maybe over a cup of coffee or, or in a quiet moment, when you're sitting down with one of your friends and your friend looks you in the eye and your friend says, tell me, how are you doing? Tell me, what's going on in your life? Really, I, I want to hear about it. I, I want to know about it. All of us know the difference, right? All of us have got it. We understand the difference between these two things, these two situations. It could be the exact same words, maybe with a little bit more uh, intention uh, in, in the one as opposed to the other, but we get the difference, and, and the difference is this. The difference is that in the latter example, our friend at that moment is expressing to us genuine concern. What they are trying to communicate to us when they look us in the eye and they ask that question, really tell me how you are doing, they're trying to communicate to us the great truth, the great reality. They care. They care about us. They care about our lives and what's going on in it. And really, one of the great central themes in our passage today is about exactly this. This kind of caring, this kind of genuine concern. So this church, the church in Philippi, the church in Philippi had originally been planted by a team that consisted at least of Paul and of Silas and Timothy. And when this church heard about Paul's later imprisonment, they were concerned. They were concerned for their brother. They were concerned for the one who was their father in the faith. And in their concern they sent Epaphroditus, okay, the second one of the two guys that are mentioned here. They sent 
Epaphroditus to Paul to see how he was doing and to help him as it would be possible to render aid to Paul while he was in prison. So they're expressing their concern by sending this guy from their church who was no doubt an elder, if not a, a teaching elder, a pastor in that church, a significant member of the church saying, you got to go. You got to go minister to Paul as best you can, given the fact that he is in prison. But it's not only the Philippians who are concerned in this letter. It's not only the Philippians in whom we see the concern. In fact, as I read this section, what you can really see in it is that everybody is equally concerned about everybody else who's concerned about them as well. It's completely circular as you look at this thing. Paul is concerned about the Philippians. He wants to hear news about them. He wants to be cheered by news. Epaphroditus is concerned for the Philippians as well, the ones who sent him, because he's heard that they heard that he got sick and nearly died on the mission. And as a result then, he knows and he's heard that now not only are the Philippians concerned about Paul himself, the object of their original concern, but they're concerned about the guy that they sent because they were concerned. So concern just goes all through this passage, and it just goes all around between everybody who's being talked about here in this passage. Paul says, listen, I'm so concerned that I'm not only going to send Epaphroditus back to you, but in addition to that, I'm going to send back Timothy with him as well. And I'm looking to, in so doing, alleviate your concern. And in sending Timothy, I'm looking to alleviate my concern as well. Verse 20, Paul describes it this way with respect to Timothy. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Uh, Timothy would not go and just pretend to be concerned about the church in Philippi. All of us know what it feels like when someone pretends to be concerned about us, but is not actually concerned about us. But Paul has been with Timothy long enough to know, listen, I know this guy. I know my brother. I know my son in the faith. And I know that it's genuine, that it's real, that it's true, that his concern for you is going to be authentic, that it's going to be a legitimate concern that he expresses for you. Uh, This word concern uh, in our passage is really, I, I think, an interesting word in context of what we're saying here and the way Paul is giving this commendation uh, with respect to Timothy, a man who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare, it's a good thing, right? This is a positive thing that Timothy is going to be concerned, is concerned, will take an actual interest in uh, their welfare. But here's the interesting thing about this word, at least I find this interesting. This is the same word, the word that is translated concerned in our passage, It's the same word that'll pop up again in Philippians 4, verse 6. And you don't have to look at it because a lot of you have this verse memorized or at least will recognize it the minute that I quote it. Philippians 6 says this, Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, etc., etc. Anxiety is the exact same word. It's the exact same word that's used in our text here. 
In one sense, Paul is commending Timothy because he's got this concern, and then he's warning at the same time, have no anxiety about anything. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, do not be concerned for your life, your welfare, do not be concerned for tomorrow, it's the same word again. It's the same word that is used here. And in other words, if we look at this word, we can see that it can go wrong. There's some line at which appropriate concern, I don't know which way to do this. I don't know which way to make this analogy. But anyway, appropriate concern can go to a certain place, and then at some point, it turns into inappropriate anxiety. Right? It's good up to this point, or it's good in this setting, it's good in this way, but in some other way, if it goes overboard, then that's not a good thing. It's either dead on the mark, or it can go wrong. Let me just show you or illustrate by looking for a moment at the front of your bulletin some other expressions of this idea in, uh, in two other places of Scripture. I, I love this verse. I think I've preached on it before, for us, or at least used it as a reference uh, before. Third John, verse 2, on the front of your bulletin, the second of the two that are there. John expresses it this way, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. John is concerned for these people, and he's concerned for them. Understand this clearly. He's concerned for them, body and soul. It's not just that he's spiritually concerned for them. He absolutely is spiritually concerned for them, even if we say he's preeminently spiritually concerned for them. But that doesn't end there. He says, I'm concerned for you that you be in good health, that your welfare, that the whole of your person be good and be well. And it's the same thing that exists in our passage as well. Paul is very concerned about the well-being of the church in Philippi, but everybody's concerned also about how everybody's doing physically. Right? That's the concern about Epaphroditus. You heard that he almost died for the faith. They're worried about Epaphroditus because he almost died. And the reason that they sent help to Paul originally is not just because Paul was in spiritual need, but he was in prison. And so they were trying to provide materially support and encouragement and help for Paul. They're concerned, body and soul. It's a deep concern of the heart, of the affections, and, and also then on the front of your bulletin, this verse from 1 Thessalonians 2, I think I lodged this into my brain in college at some point. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you hear those words? Affectionately desirous of you, because you're very dear to us. We really love you as a people. Paul. Paul is never just the, uh, the unmoved theologian, the mover and shaker missionary who lets everything roll off his back and just plows ahead no matter what has taken place. He's never unmoved. He's a man of warmth and of heat. He's a man of affections who saturates his letters with expressions of those 
affections, of the concern that he has for all of the churches. In verse 8 of Philippians chapter 1, he says it this way right at the the get-go of the letter, for God is my witness how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. With all of my bowels, with all of my guts, with all of my heart, I yearn for you with affection. Listen to all of the terms, and I'm not going to Uh, explain all these, but just listen to the way the terms pile up in our section. Paul says, I want to be cheered by news of you. He doesn't want just to be informed by news of them. He wants to be cheered by it. Paul and Timothy, like a, a father to a son, like a son to a father, is their ministry together. Paul says, Epaphroditus, my brother, Epaphroditus is longing. He's longing to see the church in Philippi again because he's distressed, because he knows they heard about how he was doing. And Paul says, listen, had Epaphroditus died, Paul, Paul and I'm sorry, this isn't Paul saying, this is us looking at him. Paul says he, well, Paul wouldn't have been a stoic. He, he wouldn't have said, well, okay, Epaphroditus died, next man up. Next, who's, who's the next guy? This is part of God's will, uh, and I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it be uh, as it is, and I'm going to move on to the next guy and trust that Epaphroditus is in heaven. He doesn't approach it that way. He says, had Epaphroditus died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Now, he would have trusted in the Lord, and he would have continued in the ministry, to be sure, but not unmoved. But instead sorrow upon sorrow. And so Paul is eager to send him that they may rejoice so that he may be less anxious. All of those words, all of the ideas that are expressed there are words that communicate this deep affection. They are heart words. They are terms of endearment. On Saturday, uh, uh, a few of us, the men, some of the men who've been studying the Jonathan Edwards book, we're going to come to the end of that. It's a series, actually, of sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. And the very last sermon, the last chapter in the book that we will look at together, I don't think there could be a better title than this of a last chapter of, from 1 Corinthians 13. The title of the chapter is Heaven is a World of Love. That's it. Heaven is a World of Love. We get to dive into that thing, and then what we see is that what heaven is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ has broken now into this world. And so we don't have perfectly a world of love right now. That hardly needs to be said. But nevertheless, we've got a taste of heaven. We've got a taste of those things in our lives and in our affections for one another. So here you go. Nate, being a deacon is full of all kinds of details. They're just detailed things you're going to work through. You're going to work through the finances of the church. I had to, I had to grab a deacon this morning and say, hey, make sure there's five chairs up here. Make sure the ice and the, the snow is off of the front steps out front. Make sure that uh, the building's taken care of. Make sure that the budget's going okay. There are lots of details to be done in the work of a deacon. Don't let those overcome being genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. It's a heart office. It's not just a get-it-done kind of office. It's a heart office. And, and 
our book of church order, and I'll read this in, in a little while in the ordination itself, says that deacons should be men of warm sympathies. Warm sympathies. Now, you don't always think of your finance guys as warm sympathies, warmly sympathetic people. The detail people aren't always the warmly sympathetic people, but that's the call. The call to the diaconate is warm sympathies, genuine concern and affection in the care of the people of God. Concerned Presbyterians, if, we, if you know that phrase from kind of PCA history. Concerned Presbyterians is an important phrase, an important group of people in the formation of our own denomination. In our text today, I think we can see, though, that not only is this genuine concern here for us, but what we can see is how that concern is expressed here, how it's manifested. Now, we've seen how the concern is manifested with the words that are used, but there's more than just words here. The, there, there's a manifestation of this concern expressed in service, in the willingness to serve. Verse 22 says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. By the way, it's not lost on me uh, that I have a text that has, is dealing with Timothy. I'm talking about a son with a father and addressing you, Nate, with these words. So I get that that's a little uh, a wonderful sequence there in the way that all comes together. But nevertheless, Timothy has served with him in the gospel. In verse 25, we read this about Epaphroditus. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. He's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and your messenger to minister, to serve, to minister to my needs. And Paul had served the Philippians by bringing to them the gospel, and the Philippians were serving Paul as they sent Epaphroditus to them. That's where they say there at the end of verse 30, Paul writes, he was sent by you, he died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The concern, then, is expressed by serving. That's the role of the deacon. Express the concern by serving. And the, the second thing, just in terms of seeing how this actually plays out that we can see, is it's expressed not only by service, but by service that is sacrificial, which is to say service that is costly. It was worth it the costly service, the costly sacrifice, because Christ himself is worthy, but it was sacrificial. It was costly and sacrificial because that is the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ offered up himself. He was the sacrifice. His life was sacrificial. That's what Paul has just built upon earlier in this very chapter uh, where he's exalting Christ because he was humbled who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he's a servant, like we saw with these other men as well, but he's a servant who's willing to allow the cost, the sacrifice to be born in his body as well. Serving Christ is a costly, a sacrificial effort, and it's fully appreciated by Paul throughout this letter. Just, just up above, in verse 17, I, I started at 19, Paul says, even if I, have be, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad. 
and rejoice with you all. See, that's sacrifice language. Paul's appreciating his own being poured out like a drink offering, their own sacrifice of faith as well. And when he talks about Epaphroditus, in the verse I just said, he nearly died for the work of Christ. And when at the end of the letter he comes back to this, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's a costly thing, this sacrifice that we offer. The concern is manifested in costly, sacrificial service to the church. And likewise, it's fostered by that service. It's fostered by that sacrifice. Your concern will grow as you actually sacrifice in the service of our Lord. And I exhort you to let these words from David just shape you and shape the way you serve. When David was offered the land for the temple that was going to be the land for the temple, he was offered it for free. Wouldn't cost anything. And he says, no, 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 no. Far be it from me. Far be it from me. I will not, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. If it doesn't cost you anything, if you go, well, there's just spare change. You know what, spare change, I'm not going to use the spare change for anything else. Here's the spare change. Here's the spare time. That's not costly sacrificial service. It's got a value to it. It has actual value, but it's not this. This is where you say, I won't offer to the Lord something that costs nothing of me. So, concern manifested in service and manifested in sacrifice. And then it's manifested as well also, and I'll just do this briefly, in presence. In presence. The concern of our Lord, of God himself, for our welfare, the welfare of his people, led our Lord Jesus Christ to take on flesh, to become one of us, to live with us, and then in his departure from us to say, I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm going to send another who will minister to you my presence. God expresses his concern with us for us by saying, I will be with you. And everyone in this passage wants to be with everyone else in this passage. Everybody wants to be together. Verse 23, I hope, therefore, to send him, that is Timothy, just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust that in the Lord shortly I myself will come also, and in the meantime, I'm also going to send Epaphroditus. Everybody in the letter wants to be together. Why? Because presence expresses concern. That's the way it works. Presence allows concern to be expressed, and it allows concern to grow when we're together serving, sacrificing, praying, eating, worshiping. And as we conclude this today, I got one last question that I want to ask of this text. I think all of us will quickly acknowledge, uh, without the last, whatever, 25 minutes of preaching, that to have a genuine concern for the welfare of other people is a good thing. And that for an officer in the church, it is particularly incumbent upon the officers of the church that they have a genuine concern for the welfare of the people of the church. I think that would be quickly agreed to by everyone. But my last question is, where do you get it? How do you get this? Or if you have some measure of it, how do you grow in it? Well, one part of this we've already seen. We've already seen this. 
And let me just say it maybe a different way. There's no way to grow in concern. There's no way to express concern for the welfare of the people of God without participation. Without participation in the work, in the ministry of the church, you will not grow in concern, and concern probably will not grow for you either. Marginal or minimal participation in the life and ministry of the church will yield marginal concern. There's no way to get around it. I can't say it any other way. I can't make it any different than that. You might have a few people that you connect with here or there, but that'll be it. That'll be it. Genuine concern grows to the degree that we participate in serving and in sacrificing and in being part of things. Uh, Please understand that doesn't make it automatic. Just doing things doesn't make it automatic that you grow in those things, but it really won't grow without those things. In, In fact, what we need to say is that more foundationally, more foundationally than participation, is that it comes, genuine concern, out of the vitality of your relationship with God. That's the source for genuine concern. God is genuinely concerned. That's what we saw in uh, the Old Testament reading that Nick read for us today. He keeps faith forever. He provides justice for the oppressed, food for the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. He opens blind eyes. He lifts up those who are bowed down, and he watches over the sojourner and the widow and the fatherless. God the Son is the incarnate example of caring, of genuine concern. When he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he's the example of genuine concern. He's lived out before us. And God the Spirit is the one who takes these things, quickens them, and brings them to life in our hearts. Nate, there's a common level of concern that exists within people, that exists with people we know, and that exists with people that we love. Uh, And that's natural. Well, it, it comes from God, but that's natural. Whatever common level of concern that you have for people in general is not sufficient to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of this people as a whole. Of, of people here collectively. That has to be spirit-wrought. That doesn't just come from you being a good guy who's concerned about other people. This is different than that. It's a spirit-wrought concern, and that's where this chapter started off. It starts off here. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... It's the participation in the Spirit of God that quickens, that quickens the concern for the people of God, without which it'll just fade, will just be annoying to you, will just ultimately be an annoyance. And I think the early church recognized this. And that's why in Acts chapter 6, where we see the first appointing of the deacons by the apostles in the church, what they say to the church in terms of a qualification is choose men from amongst yourselves who are full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. Because men who are full of the Spirit will be men who take up the duty, however menial the duty will be, making sure that the food is distributed well in Acts chapter 6 and fairly. 
Those are the men of the Spirit who will have genuine affection for others. Your own affection is not enough for this service. Intimacy with the triune God must be at the root of your service and your concern. To all of us, may we honor and imitate such men as Timothy and Epaphroditus insofar as they follow our Lord Jesus Christ, insofar as they exemplify for us the life of Christ lived in service to the people of God. And may we find that in the officers of the church as well, so that we see that develop in them and then that genuine concern develop in us as well. Lord, we recognize that we're not sufficient for these things, that they don't exist naturally within us. And so, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh upon us, that we would be concerned genuinely for the welfare of one another, and that we would give shape to that concern in our service for one another, in our words of affection, in our sacrifice for one another, in our presence with one another. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if I can invite uh, now the elders of the church 